All right, if you could uh, turn in your Bibles with me to uh, John chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had passed through Samaria, and so he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is, it then, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never, thirst, never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that it is in Jerusalem is the place where women ought to walk for where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or, Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jar, and went away into the town and said to the people, Come and see a man who has told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. Do you, do you not say, there are yet four mouths, months, then comes the harvest? 
Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here is the saying, for, for here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard it ourselves and know that this is indeed the savior of the world. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own town. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. God bless the reading of his word. I began the, the last two Sundays by presenting excerpts from the stories of missionaries from church history. David Brainerd, who poured out his life and spreading the gospel amongst the North American Indians of New England, and John Leonard Dober and David Nietzscheman, who sold themselves into slavery to reach out to slaves in the Caribbean. Now, both of these examples are from the 18th century, a time when, when more were added to the church than perhaps even under the ministry of the apostles themselves. It was a time of, of huge revival all around the world. This era produced other great men, men like George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards were instrumental in what is known as the first great awakening. And George Whitfield um, had been used powerfully by God in England, and then he traveled to America as a missionary. And then later in the century, William Carey, inspired by the, the diary of David Brainerd that we've been reading from, traveled to India and became the father of modern missions. What did these men have in common? What made them so successful in their ministry? First of all, all of these men were genuinely born again. All of these men were eminently holy in their conduct. All of these men were men of the Bible, each with sound theological understanding. All of them poured themselves out in the service of Christ and his church. But why did the Lord bless their efforts with revival? Was it their piety? Was it their wisdom? Was it their strength? Or was it their techniques? It was none of these things. It was simply because God was pleased to act through these men. I've shared this story with you before, but, but Jonathan Edwards' most famous sermon is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it's, it's famous, but it's also probably infamous. Those who are truly born again love this sermon because it tells us of the grace that we have in Jesus Christ who saved us from the wrath of God, even as, as Edwards talked about, about the wrath of God being, being stayed by the hand of a sovereign God, that the arrow of his wrath was pointed at our hearts, and it was only the 
the grace of God that kept that arrow from being let fly to be made drunk with our blood. Now those who, are, those who love Christ, those who are truly born again, know that it took the death of Christ to save us from our sins. And we know what the wrath of God means, and we know how fierce God's wrath is because when we look at the cross, we see what he did to his son in our place. But it's infamous because those who are perishing, those who are at this point haters of Jesus Christ, don't want to be called sinners. And they don't like to be told that they can't earn their own salvation. Now, that probably wouldn't be considered a positive message by most standards. But for those of us who are in Christ, it is the most positive, the most positive of messages. But Jonathan Edwards, when he preached that sermon at his own church in Northampton, did so with, with very little effect. There was, was no, seemingly no, no reaction, or very little reaction from his congregation. But when he preached the exact same sermon in Enfield, a couple hours away, just a few years later, the Holy Spirit moved in such a way that, that many, many people in the congregation were literally throwing themselves on the ground out of fear of falling into the hands of an angry God. And they were literally holding on to the rails of the pews in, in abject terror of the anger of God. And many, many people came to genuine salvation on that day. But it wasn't because of George, or it wasn't because of Jonathan Edwards himself that that happened. It wasn't because of, of George Whitfield himself that the people came to the Lord by thousands. They said that when he was preaching in England, he would go and, and preach outside the mines as the, as the men were, were headed into the mines and coming out of the mines. And he's, when, when these, these huge crowds would be gathered around, around George Whitfield, these men whose faces were black from working in the coal mines all day, they had streaks of, of clean skin where, the, where the, their tears had poured out because of their sin. Now this wasn't because of George Whitfield or because he was, was such a great man, but because there was a great God at work in and through George Whitfield. There was a great God who was at work in and through Jonathan Edwards. It wasn't about their abilities or their techniques. It was about a holy God. And the Lord was pleased to bring about what's referred to as the first great awakening under the ministry of these men. But the next century produced another great awakening. Now I hesitate to call it great because of what was behind the so-called great awakening. Its pioneer was a man named Charles Finney. Charles Finney, who was viewed by many as a hero of the faith, was actually in many ways heretical in what he taught. He was a man who denied penal substitution. He denied that Jesus took the penalty that we deserve on the cross. And that, my friends, is the heart of the gospel. If you deny the heart of the gospel, you are not a preacher of the gospel. Now, Finney 
used, he was a lawyer, so he used a lot of, of lawyerly techniques in order to convince people of their need for salvation. And so, so the, the, uh, he had actually had set up an anxious bench where, where they would have people sitting and, and call them out publicly for their sin and berate them again and again and again and again until they would be, be broken. Now, it's, if, if somebody is berating you for your sin and coming at you like that, you can be broken, but it, it's very likely it's not the Holy Spirit. It could be, but it very likely isn't. He thought that because of using his techniques, the long, drawn-out altar call, these, the, the, the anxious bench, these things that he used were man-made inventions that produced results. People came forward, but many were not converted. And sadly, his legacy continues to this day. And many of the techniques that we see used in evangelistic revival come from Charles Finney, not from the pages of Holy Scripture. Now recently, we voted as a church to end support for several missionaries that had been, we had been supporting for a long time. Does that mean that we don't believe that missions are important? Far from it. It's because we believe that missions are important that we had to do this. We're responsible for every dollar that we spend as a church. And we, we were prompted by our own financial situation to send out letters to the missionaries that we were supporting. Some had been supported for, for a long time that, that many people in the church didn't know. We wanted to find out their theology and their methodology. And we said because of our financial constraints, we wanted to limit our focus to those with whom we were most aligned theologically and methodologically. Now it was sad because I, it's really unbelievable, but, but several didn't even respond to those letters. They made our decision very easy. But it's because we have a, a, a care about these things, we want to make sure that missions is done right. And sadly, things like, like the Finney Revival have led to a, what I call a counter-Copernican revolution in theology, in the theology and methodology of missions. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with what a Copernican revolution is, it, let me explain so you understand what I mean. Copernicus was a 16th century astronomer, and he was the one that, that proposed a heliocentric picture of the, of the solar system rather than a geocentric one. Okay, what do I mean by that? He was the one that proposed that it was the sun that was the center of the, of the solar system. Prior to that, it was thought that the earth was the center of the solar system, and not just the solar system, but the universe. So when, when the Copernicus, ter Copernicus turned the astronomical world on its head, no pun intended, he, he, didn't, he didn't actually really turn it on its head, but he turned it the right way around. They'd had a wrong understanding prior to that. Copernicus proved that the sun is the center of the solar system. And the church at the time fought against it. The church thought that, no, 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 the earth is the center. It's all about the earth. But Copernicus said, no, it's all about the sun. 
Now think about that. He was talking there about the U-S-U-N. But what we should be focused on is the S-O-N. We, people, are not at the center of missions. God is at the center of missions. And to any extent that we are focused on men in our missions methodology or theology, we have strayed from the biblical understanding of what missions is meant to be. This passage before us this morning in John 14 has something to teach us about the proper doctrine and methods of missions. Now, we can obviously go a great deal further than what this passage teaches. The Bible does have a lot more than what is just said here. I mean, this is my third week in, in peach, preaching this ta- passage. The first week we, we spoke about, about true judgment and how this passage shows us true judgment. And then we, we spoke about true worship and how this passage shows us true worship. This morning, we're going to be looking at true missions, which is a subset of true worship. So suffice it to say that there are clear things that we can draw out from this passage to get a better understanding of what missions really is. And I had fun with M's when I did this. Don't be scared because there's so many points. Most of them are are relatively brief. But method for missions, maxim for missions, Muscle for missions, mindset for missions, moment for missions, motivation for missions, and manpower for missions. And this passage teaches us all of these things. So first of all, in verses 4 to 18 and in 39 to 42, we see the method for missions. The method for missions. And this is where I'm actually going to spend most of my time this morning. It's one thing to have a correct theology for missions, but it is quite another to have a correct methodology for missions. We spoke about that in our personal lives, that there's many people who have, they can tick all the theological boxes. They have a very, a very orthodox theology. But when you look at them and the way that they live their lives, it's very clear that the way that they live out their theology has there's a disconnect that they they show that they really don't understand or even believe the correct theology because of the methodology or the way that they live their lives and the same is true with missions your theology needs to drive your methodology i've already spoken to you about the theology and methodology of charles finney and its lasting legacy but in short, his, his results-oriented, ends-justify-the-means methodology detracted from the glory of God. A number of years ago, when I was in seminary, I had to write a paper on, on Jonathan Edwards versus Charles Finney on Revival. And what I did was I lined up the, the doctrines of grace because they are really foundational to a right, a right theology and a right methodology. And at every point, Jonathan Edwards was on one end and Charles Finney was on the other. Now, there's, there's only a couple of, of options here. Either Jonathan Edwards was right or Finney was right or they were both wrong. But when you study the Word of God and you study the writing of Jonathan Edwards, 
it is his testimony, it is his theology that most clearly lines up with what the Bible teaches about these things. So when we're thinking about the methodology for missions, we want to think about how our theology ground is it grounds our, our theology grounds our methodology. First of all, I want us to see how this opportunity for Jesus to reach out to the Samaritans came about. Because Jesus was was drawing too much attention from the Pharisees, he decided to head from Jerusalem back to Galilee. Now, he could have gone around Samaria like many Jews would do because they didn't want to come into contact with the, the unclean Samaritans, but Jesus went straight through it. And it wasn't just because it was the shortest route. It was the shortest route, but he was going on mission. Now, some people see this as a contradiction with Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6, where Jesus sent out the disciples on their first mission and commanded them to go nowhere among the Gentiles and to enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But this was just the first mission that Jesus sent his disciples out on. When you compare this with other passages of Scripture, what, which is what we must always do when we're trying to determine what the Bible really teaches, they, Jesus elsewhere said to go to the nations. Now the Great Commission, which is, which is there on the cover of your bulletin, he says it clearly, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, even the Samaritans. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said to the disciples just before his ascension, he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So what Jesus was, was doing here when he said in Matthew to, to go first to the house of Israel, he was fulfilling a promise that had been made back in the Old Testament, a promise to Abraham and the patriarchs that, that he would send a Messiah. Now this will receive its ultimate fulfillment when Jesus, before Jesus comes back at the end, when he, when he, he finishes this, this mission that was started. But the disciples were to go first to Judea, first, and then this, to the Samaritans. Now, at this point, I need to, uh, to point out the difference between something that is descriptive versus something that is prescriptive. Something that is, it is prescriptive is a command. It's God is prescribing what we should do, telling us. He's prescribing our behavior, prescribing how we should do certain things. And much of Scripture is prescriptive. But there is also much Scripture that is descriptive. Descriptive, it's simply describing events that have taken place and can, can, can provide for us principles, but does not always say we need to do it lockstep like this, step by step. It doesn't mean that, that every time you minister to a Samaritan, you need to go and meet her at a well. And then you need to ask, ask her for a drink. Like this is, this is descriptive. It is not prescriptive. It doesn't mean that anytime we go somewhere, first we need to go to the Jews 
go to the synagogue, even like Paul did, and then go to everybody else. Okay, that was, was descriptive of a specific event, of a specific time in salvation history. And it's important that you, that you distinguish between these things when you, when you study God's Word and seek to apply God's Word to your life. But again, with that, I, I need to, to give a, a caveat. I need to give you a warning that there's a lot of people that take it too far in the other direction. And they say that certain passages that are meant to be prescriptive, they say they are just descriptive. That was for that specific people, for that specific time. That is a very, very, very dangerous hermeneutic. Because if you do that, then you are saying that you can, you can then justify any behavior and say, no, 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 that was for that specific time. Homosexuality, no, 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 that was just for then. Biblical manhood and womanhood, no, 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 that was just for that particular era or that particular church. We need to study what God says in his word and, and compare verses with verses in order to determine what God is saying we should do. So this passage shows us how Jesus did this mission, how Jesus reached out to this particular woman at this particular time. But that being said, there are principles that must not be tampered with. That must not be tampered with. When Jesus, the principle, what, so we need to ask here, what principles can be universally applied? What things do apply to us today from John chapter 4? First of all, I've already noted that Jesus went into Samaria with intentionality. Everywhere Jesus went, everything that Jesus did, every word that Jesus said was intentional. Intentional. But how many of us go through life just letting life happen to us? Just like cattle. We go to the grocery store. We buy the milk. We go through the checkout. We will just say hello to the checkout clerk. We'll go back to our car. We'll go back home. Think about that. Now, I'm not saying you have to share the gospel with everybody in the supermarket. But are you looking for opportunities? Are you seeking opportunities to share the gospel? Are you looking for opportunities to live out the gospel? with those who are around you in your life? Are you seeing the trials of your life instead of being all about you, being all about the Son? Are you applying the gospel to the trials of your life? Are you, are you saying to yourself, I know that God loves me because he sent his Son to die for my sins. Therefore, Therefore, whatever happens in my life comes to me from the hand of a sovereign, loving, and wise God who has ordained that all things would work together for my good and his glory. Are you seeing that the things that happen in your life are instead of, of being 
trials where it's, woe is me, I've got this, this ache or this pain. Instead it can be, how can I glorify God in the midst of this? How can I, how can I show others that my trust is in Christ in the midst of this? When people are persecuting you for your faith and, and being disrespectful to you, instead of, of lashing out, do you see it as an opportunity instead to glorify God by turning the other cheek? Friends, I'm preaching to myself here about this. This is something that, that I struggle with, just like many of you. When you realize that life is all about the sun, it ceases. Your, your life ceases to be about you. And it gives you opportunity to glorify God no matter what you face. So are we going through life with intentionality? Now, when, when we look at, at the Great Commission that I referred to earlier, Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, people tend to overemphasize the going part as though over there missions are more important than right here missions. The verb form makes clear that, that making disciples is the main verb in this phrase. It's not... It is not just going. So Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We're talking more about this in, in uh, verse 18 as well in a little bit. But the focus here is on the making of disciples, not on the going. Craig Blomberg says, to make disciples of all nations does require that, that many people leave their homelands, but Jesus' main focus remains on the task of all believers to duplicate themselves wherever they may be. So what is missions but evangelism? Now we, we tend to think of missions, don't we, as, as over there. Now, I don't want to do anything to, to minimize the, the cost that brothers and sisters have, have paid to go and to leave behind their family and their homelands to go minister to people of a different country amongst a, a very different culture and language and often under really difficult circumstances. But when we go anywhere, we're in the mission field. And I would argue even that, that sometimes the mission field is right here in this church because there are unbelievers even here in our midst. But my church in Australia had a sign at the end of the lane as you, as you left the church, you're now entering the mission field. You're now entering the mission field. Wherever you go, you are a missionary as you shine the light of Christ into the lives of the people with whom you rub shoulders day by day. Now, I hope that some people from here will go over there. But if you aren't doing evangelism here, what makes you think you'll do it over there? We carry, our lives need to be characterized by a proclamation of the gospel in word 
and indeed right here and right now, wherever you are. This passage also shows us Jesus' version of needs-based evangelism. This woman perceived her need of physical water. And Jesus showed her, her that her real need was spiritual water. She came to the well to draw water, but Jesus gave her the water of life. Now, I find it ironic that so many missions organizations now are focused on providing clean drinking, clean drinking water to third world countries. Now, please hear me, though. I'm not saying that there's anything inherently wrong with that. Providing water can be a wise way for us to open doors into a country into, into where we would not normally have access. And it can be a practical way to show people that we care for them. But providing water, physical water, must not be the ultimate end. When we go as missionaries, we go not to meet people's felt needs. Jesus didn't come to give you your best life now. Jesus gave, came to give you eternal life in Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't come to give you a sense of self-worth. He came to deliver you from the bondage and the penalty of sin. So what is our, our goal here in missions is, is not ultimately to, to provide for physical needs, because that, that makes us no better than an NGO humanitarian organization. Missions doesn't exist primarily to meet people's felt needs, but their real needs. It doesn't exist primarily to meet their physical needs, but their spiritual needs. People's spiritual needs must be central. So often the gospel is either tacked on or ignored altogether, as, with, as it is in, in the emergent church. That's just a the emergent church is not really a new thing. It's not really emerging. It's been around for a long time. But the social gospel is not the gospel. Is it wrong to help dig wells or to build homes? Not at all. But when it becomes the focus, things are completely upside down. Again, it is, it is as though men are at the center, not the sun. Furthermore, it can amount to just bribery. Come to Christ and all this can be yours. Or look at all Jesus has done by providing you with this water. Won't you come to him? This is manipulation. It is not the gospel. The gospel doesn't need a slick advertising campaign. For those in whom the Holy Spirit is at work, they will see the need. They will see their need for salvation. The gospel is attractive enough to those whom the Lord is drawing. Next, Jesus showed the, the Samaritan woman that she was a sinner and that she needed a Savior. This is also a necessary part of our evangelism. In, in Christian culture, we can know, in our post-Christian culture rather, we can no longer assume that people have a correct understanding of the gospel. Churches and the airwaves are full of men who corrupt the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be Berean. We need to measure everything that we hear by the word of God. Beloved, you need to measure everything that you hear from me according to the word of God. 
one of the key things, one of the important things, one of the necessary things that we need to do in sharing the gospel with people is to show them that they're sinners. If I go to tell somebody that, they, that they're lost, in this culture they're going to say, what? I know exactly where I am. Or if you go in this culture and tell somebody they need to be saved, quite often they're just going to say, saved from what? I've got a great life. We need to lay a foundation of Scripture and show them that they're lost. Show them that they're sinners. Show them that they need to be saved. And show them that Jesus is the only Savior. So in that, I'm, I'm very thankful for ministries like the Way of the Master that uses the, the law of God. Now, you're not limited just to that, that pattern, but showing somebody from the law of God that they're sinners if the Holy Spirit is at work in their hearts, it can help to break through the, the, the barriers, barriers that are there that keep them from hearing it. So when you, when you ask somebody, are, are you a good person? And they say, yes. I think I'm a very good person. You can ask them, well, have you ever told a lie? And most people, if they're not lying at that time, will, will say, well, yeah, okay, I've lied. And then you can ask them, well, what do you call somebody who, who lies? And they, again, if they're being honest, will say, a liar. And then you can say, well, how does that measure up with being good? We need to show people that it's God's standard of goodness, not man's standard of goodness that matters. And that's what Jesus did with this woman. Next, we see from this passage that Jesus was making disciples. He wasn't just making converts. This wasn't just a hit-and-run mission. He didn't just share the gospel with the lady and say, Oh, the disciples are back. See you later. Have a nice day. He stayed, he stayed with them for, for two days and taught them. And we see similarly in Acts chapter 8, when Philip the Evangelist went to the Samaritans again, the, when the rest of the apostles heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to follow up. Now, so often today, evangelism is just about bean counting or notches in your Bible. It's about converts. But it's not about converts. It's about disciples. And if you wanted to make a disciple, it takes time. It takes investment of yourself. It takes, it takes pain. It takes difficulty. It takes walking with somebody through the trials of life, teaching them the Word of God, and helping to correct wrong thinking. Friends, there is not a chance that I would be here as a pastor today were it not for the men that God sent into my life to minister into my life and to correct me when I was on the wrong track. We all need to do that for each other. No, we're not going to be called pastors Especially if, if, you're, if you're a woman, you're not going to be called a pastor. But there are things that we can all be doing. There are ways that we can be growing. And we need each other. We need to disciple each other into these things. That's what the Great Commission teaches. A couple of notable missions organizations here. One is, is called Heart Cry. You might have heard of, of Paul Washer. And if you haven't, uh, I really do recommend... Uh, his ministry, He's, he, he, will, he will beat you up, but he will beat you up lovingly with tears in his eyes as he's grieving unrepentant sin. 
But his, his missions organization is called Heart Cry, and I really commend if, if, if we had people to leave, leave here to go as missionaries, we would, would love to see them involved with a group like Heart Cry. His view is primarily that, that Heart Cry, it's, it's a ministry of the church. And, and missions really fundamentally needs to be part of the church. We as a church want to support missionaries individually as they go from here. People that we know, people that we've been training, people that, that, we can, that are accountable to this church. And one of the things that, that Heart Cry does is, is it, it's, it's fundamentally focused on, on training up local men to be leaders in the churches. My, uh, my mentor, Steve Sconce, did the same thing in Papua New Guinea. They went there for a limited term. They were there for three years, and their focus was to, to take men who had been nominated as leaders from their churches and to build, to pour into their lives for three years and to train them up to go back to their churches as leaders. They had an exit strategy. And I'm not saying that all missions has to have that, but I think it's a really good thing. And that's what happened here with, the, with, this, with this lady. She became a missionary in her own community. The men of that community who came out to here became missionaries in their own community, and eventually a Samaritan church was established. Next, we want to see the maxim for missions. That's from, from verses 16 to 22. And I'm going to cover this point very briefly because we spent a lot of time on it last week. But Jesus showed here in this passage that the, the beliefs of the Samaritans were wrong. She, he told the woman that God is seeking those to worship him in spirit and in truth. There are basic maxims or truths upon which missions is based. Truths about who God is. Truths about who we are. And if you stray from those things, you might be on mission, but you're no longer on mission for God. True worship must be grounded in truth. Many people worship a God that is completely foreign to the God of the Bible. And one of the key things of, of missions, one of the key mandates and maxims of missions is to show who God is and who we are apart from Him and who we are in Him. And these truths are contained in God's Word. Again, if you stray from these maxims, you have strayed from what missions really is. Next, in verses 23 and 24, we find the muscle for missions. The muscle for missions. In verse 23, Jesus says that the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. We talked about this last week, too. We are seeker-sensitive because God is the seeker. The work of missions is ultimately God's work. Jesus says in verse 34 that he seeks to accomplish God's work. Ephesians 2.10 says that for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So when you do a work of missions, it's because of, of God's prior and enduring work in your hearts. 
And every good work that you do has been set up in advance by God, and it will be established because God is on the throne, because God is sovereign. The basis for missions is the work of God. He provides the muscle. The power and the authority are His. In the Great Commission, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. Because of the authority that has been given to Jesus, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So under His authority, we go and make disciples. And He promises in verse 20, And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's because we are grounded in God's power that we are able to do anything, anything, any act of obedience, whether it's loving your wife or whether it's loving a a heathen in Papua New Guinea. You can't do any of it apart from God's work in you. And because God is seeking worshipers, our mission is assured of success. We couldn't say that if missions depended on our efforts or on the ability of hearers of the gospel to respond to their own strength according to their supposed free will. We wouldn't be able to say that any mission was assured of success unless God is assuring that success. However, because God is drawing his elect to himself, we know that the people that God intends to save will be saved. Jane was at a, at a conference a number of years ago when, when John Piper was the keynote speaker. And somebody Jane thinks was actually a, a friend of hers who, who didn't believe in God's sovereignty asked John Piper in the Q&A, well, if, if God is sovereign and God is going to save who God's going to save, why evangelize? And Piper said to her, if it wasn't for God's sovereignty over salvation, why would we ever evangelize? We evangelize because we are assured of success. Jesus said it quite clearly in John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. And in verse 65, No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. It's very clear. But again, some would say, well, if God's going to save whoever he's going to save, why bother evangelizing? The answer that I would give is twofold. Number one, because God commands it. And number two, because God has ordained that he would save souls through the spread of his gospel by his people. Now, Jesus obviously knew that this Samaritan woman was elect. We do not have that prior knowledge. So we spread the gospel, trusting that God is going to do the work in the hearts of his people. Somebody asked C.H. Spurgeon the same question. They asked Spurgeon, well, if you believe that God is sovereign over these things, why do you evangelize? And Spurgeon said just that. He said, he said that because I don't know who's elect and who isn't. He said that if all of the elect had a yellow stripe down their backs, I would cease to be a preacher of the gospel and I would be a shirt tail lifter. We don't know who God is going to save, but we preach the gospel in the confidence that God is going to save 
whoever God is going to save. We faithfully declare the gospel, and God brings the results. Next, we see the mindset for missions from verses 31 to 34. The mindset for missions. While Jesus was teaching this woman, the disciples arrived back from their shopping trip. Now at this point, the Samaritans were beginning to pour out of the village in order to hear Jesus for themselves. And in verse 31, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat. Now always looking for an opportunity to teach his disciples, he responded, I have food to eat that you do not know about. But as so often was the case, the disciples didn't get it. They asked, has anyone brought him something to eat? But Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now we saw last week how Jesus did have physical needs. He was truly, it is truly God and truly man. So when he when he he went to this place, he went to the well. He was the scripture says that he was he was he was tired. Jesus was thirsty. So on that one one level, he did go to the well because he was tired and thirsty. But he had greater priorities, and he wanted to show that to his disciples. He wanted to show that his obedience to God went far far deeper even than the the physical need for food. Beloved, can you say that about your life? That your desire to please God goes deeper to you than even for your need for food? Now, I don't know about you. I can make a pretty good guess. But I know about me. And I know that far, 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 far too often I'm more focused about my stomach than I am on the things of God, than on living for God. But at the same time, I thank God that Christ's obedience has been applied to me that it's though every act of obedience that Jesus Christ ever did, it's not as though every act of obedience that Jesus Christ ever did has been credited to my account. That's called imputation. That is the imputation of Christ's righteousness. So I stand before God. If you are in Christ, you stand before God. Think about it. You stand before God, clothed, clothed in righteousness that is not your own. It is a gift. But because of that, because of that gift of righteousness, when you really understand by the Holy Spirit that 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 righteousness has been given to you, that in the gospel, you've been given Christ's righteousness and he has taken your sin. When you really understand that, you will increasingly 
live for God. Your food will increasingly be to obey and to do God's work. If you're going to sacrifice the comforts of home to serve God in another place, you need to have the right mindset. I have many friends who have joyfully given up their, their lives in North America and Australia to go and serve in other parts of the world, in China, in Africa, in the Middle East, in India. Now when they face the necessary trials, when they face the culture shock, the loneliness, the illness, the discomfort, the persecution, they're able to keep going to the degree that their food is to do the will of God and to accomplish His work. We need to have the correct mindset. And the same is true for us who stay here. The only way that you are ever able to share the gospel with somebody and love somebody who is spitting in your face is because your food is to do the will of God and to accomplish His work. May we all have that mindset. Next, in verse 35, we see the moment for missions. The moment for missions. Jesus told them there in verse 35, Do you, do you not say, yet there are four months, and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. Beloved, the moment for missions is now. Enough said. Next point. The motivation for missions. Verse 36. In verse 36, Jesus says, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. The Apostle Paul says similarly in 1 Corinthians 3.8, He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Jesus gives two motivations for missions that we often don't think about, that of receiving wages and that of rejoicing. Now, we don't like to think about working for reward. It sounds mercenary to us. But repeatedly in Scripture, we're told to seek the reward. We went in that, into that in detail when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount in John chapter 6, where Jesus uses the word reward seven times in total. In verses 1 to 18, and then he follows it up by saying in verses 19 to 20 that we are not to lay up treasures on earth, but to lay up treasures in heaven. So is it wrong to be looking for a reward? Well, that depends on the reward you're looking for. If you're looking for rewards in this life, then it's the wrong reward. If you're looking for accolades from other people, it's the wrong reward. Scripture tells us to be motivated by the eternal reward. When you understand that Jesus is your treasure, when you understand who Jesus is, the, the praise of man ceases to have any impact on you. Why would you be motivated by the temporary and relatively worthless treasures in this life when you could be rewarded with Jesus Christ himself? And not just for a moment, but for all eternity. And Dave knows that reward right now. But there is a sense also in which we're going to be given crowns 
that are all determined by the sovereignty of God and our faithfulness here. Now, we, we don't know exactly what those, those crowns are, but in Philippians 4.1 and, and 1 Thessalonians 2.19 and 2 Timothy 2.8, um, Paul refers in that last verse to the, the crown of righteousness is, is to be laid up for him in that day. And the, the righteousness, that crown, we're going, we're going to cast our crowns at the feet of the Lord because it, it, the, anything that we did, we will realize we've done it through him. And the rewards ultimately are to be giving glory to him. It's not, you're not going to go around saying, ha, I got a big crown and you got a little one. It will be all for the glory of God. In Revelation 4, verses 10 and 11, John writes, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The next reward that Jesus talks about here is that of joy. Our greatest joy, if you're in Christ, your greatest joy comes when you see God glorified and his kingdom expanded. If you've ever had the privilege of being used by God to bring somebody to faith in Him, then you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever been used of God to speak God's Word into somebody's life so that they repented from sin and were able to to glorify God in a way that they had been previously unable to do, you know what I'm talking about. When When you realize the privilege of of serving God in whatever capacity He calls you to serve, you receive joy. You rejoice with worship in your hearts, and you rejoice when you see other people worshiping. And worship is one of the chief motivations for missions. Now, by that I don't mean that evangelism is worship, even though it is. All of life is meant to be worship. I mean that evangelism is about creating worship where worship didn't exist previously. John Piper says that missions exists because worship doesn't. And in the same way, evangelism exists because worship doesn't. The Great Commission is driven by the Great Commandment. We go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that that Jesus commanded because we want people to love the Lord their God with all of their heart, all of their soul, all of their mind, and all of their strength. Remember the words of of those Moravians after they'd sold themselves into slavery, the lamb will receive the due payment for his suffering. We want to see that. We want to see God get the glory that he deserves, so we want to, to facilitate worship in a place where before there's only been blackness. And that's true whether it's in the heart of, of somebody in India or whether in the heart of your own next-door neighbor. It's true whether it's in, in the, the heart of of somebody that you're ministering to, or it's true whether it's in your heart, in your own family. As you receive the joy, the blessing of being used of God to speak into somebody's life. But friends, the the ultimate motivation 
of missions isn't making converts. It's not even making disciples. The ultimate motivation of missions is the glory of God. Spurgeon said the grand object of the Christian ministry is the glory of God, whether souls are converted or not. If Jesus Christ be faithfully preached, the minister has not labored in vain, for he is a sweet savor unto God as well as in them that perish as in them that are saved. It is ours to sow even in stony places where no fruit rewards our toil. But we are still bound to look for a harvest and mourn for it if it does not appear in due time. The glory of God being our chief object, we aim at it by seeking the edification of saints and the salvation of sinners. Now, on, on Thursday, I had the privilege of preaching the gospel at, at Dave's memorial service. And I, I, I know that, that, that Dave would have been pleased with that. There was a lot of unbelievers here on Thursday. But I didn't ultimately do it for Dave. I did it for God and for the glory of God. Now, there were people that, that were, were, you'd be amazed what a preacher can see on a, on a Sunday morning or, or at any time. But there was people that were really not happy with me. And I received reports from some of you that they heard kind of murmuring and a bit of that going on. There's people that actually walked out. Now, is that, is that my desire? Do I, do I want to see that happen? I don't. I'm not, I'm not pleased in that sense when, when, people, when people reject the gospel. But by God's grace, he was still glorified. We are called to be the aroma of Christ, the aroma of life in those who are being saved, and the aroma of death in those who are perishing. When we are obedient and we faithfully preach God's word or live out God's word or speak God's word over the back fence or in one of the four corners of the earth, we are glorifying God no matter what results we see in this life. Now, I don't know, maybe some of those people in 20 years' time or on their deathbed will repent and come to salvation in Christ. But that's not my mandate. That's not my problem. I need to preach and let God do what God is going to do. Finally, we want to see the manpower for missions, the manpower for missions. Jesus told the disciples in verses 36 to 38, for there the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap, to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. In Matthew 9, 37, Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So we've already seen how God provides the muscle. But we, beloved, are his manpower. God has ordained to work through his people in the proclamation of his gospel. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.6, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. We aren't anything. The growth comes from God. 
Now, do I respect those friends of mine who have gone and served in other places? I do. But the glory isn't theirs. The glory is God's. And since God has ordained to work through the proclamation of the gospel and the salvation of souls, we evangelize. We engage in missions. Let me say this again. The manpower of missions is you. We would be so delighted to send out our brightest and best men who are qualified as elders to go to the ends of the earth. I need to ask you the question, what is God calling you to do with your life? Have you been satisfied with the status quo? Do you enjoy the comforts of home so much that you would let them keep you from going and fulfilling the Great Commission in your backyard or across the Pacific Ocean? Again, the Great Commission is motivated by the Great Commandment. I said earlier, we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And Jesus said, the second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. Do you love God and love other people enough to give up the things in this life that you hold so dearly to go and serve God? Not just in the future, but today. Not just in China, but in your own neighborhood. Let's pray.